over the last couple of Sunday mornings, we've been studying the high priestly prayer here in John chapter 17 as we make our way through the entire Gospel of John. And in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for His people, all of them, even you, if you are in Christ Jesus this morning. Look at John chapter 17 and verse 20. Jesus says that not only is He praying for His people who were with Him there and then, He says, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. So Jesus was praying not just for His people who were already believers who were with Him there and then, but as they would be sent out to go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is praying here for all who will eventually believe in Him through their word, which includes you and me then. If you could hear Jesus praying for you, what would He be saying? These few verses before us at the end of John chapter 17 put us within earshot of Jesus, so to speak, as He prays for us. We get to eavesdrop, so to speak, on Jesus as He prays for us. But this not only but also language that we see in verse 20 indicates to us that Jesus is still praying for His people who were with Him there and then as he goes on to explicitly include us, future believers, in his prayer. Jesus hasn't stopped praying for his contemporaries. This not only but also language also indicates that Jesus hasn't been up to this point praying exclusively for his disciples who were with him there and then. But he has also been praying for us the whole time. So there's some overlap here, and I don't, I don't want to draw such a fine line that we think he's been exclusively praying for his disciples there and then, up to verse 19, and that he's only praying for us and not his disciples there and then, in verses 20 to 26. He's praying for all his people in all of John 17. So really, all of this chapter is what Jesus is praying for us, and we need to bear that in mind. But with that in mind... What does Jesus pray in John 17, 20 to 26 for all of his people, including us? That's our focus this morning. And first we see that Jesus prays for the unity of believers. This is the first request that Jesus makes of his Father. Verse 21, that they may all be one. And well, this is a favorite proof text of the modern day ecumenical movement and uh, various organizations and rallies and events that spring up with a aim uh, at Christian unity, you very often hear this, Jesus prayed that we would all be one, so therefore your church should sign up for this rally or your church should be part of this event or whatever. It doesn't actually mean what so many seem to think it does. After all, Jesus is not praying to us that we would do something, right? So when Jesus prays that they would all be one, it's not a rallying cry for us to do something. Jesus isn't asking us to join the movement, to participate in some event, to add our own names or to add the name of our church to a list of Christians so that, as He prays, 
we would be one. It's not up to us to fulfill this prayer. Jesus isn't praying to us. Jesus is not petitioning us. Rather, Jesus is praying to his Father, asking him to do something. Jesus wants his Father to make believers one. And what is the nature of the unity that Jesus envisions? Jesus envisions that believers will be one just as, look at the verse, just as the Father is in the Son and as the Son is in the Father. He wants believers to be in the Father and in, and in the Son in the same way that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, a little bit of common sense added to what we already know from other scriptures should help us steer clear of a serious error here. Jesus is not praying that we will become God. Jesus is not praying that we will become divine and that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit will become a panoply of God's of divine beings. Jesus is not praying that all of reality will shift from being monotheistic, where there is only one true God, to all of a sudden being polytheistic, where we become gods. Of course, that is not what Jesus is praying, and I, I don't, I can't fully expand on that this morning for the sake of time, but based on what we know from other scripture, we know that that's not the plan of God. Jesus is praying, however, that in some way, believers will become one with He and the Father. That's explicit in the text. He wants believers to be one just as the Father is in the Son and as the Son is in the Father, that they, that is believers, may be in us, Jesus says, referring to Himself and the Father, so Jesus does want us to be one in some sense, in an analogous way to the way the Father and the Son are one. And he wants us to be in the Father and the Son as he is in the Father and as the Father is in him. So the question arises, in what way precisely are believers to become one with the Father and the Son? In what way precisely are believers to be in the Father and the Son, just as, in Jesus' words, the Father and the Son are in one another? Clearly, the becoming in one another and being one doesn't entail becoming divine. But there is a profound oneness with Christ that we do experience in salvation which is what Jesus is speaking about here. I read a very helpful article, uh, essay this week, written by Donald Fairbairn and published in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, in which he analyzes the various ways in which this question has been understood throughout church history, and particularly in the thinking of the early church fathers. The correct answer, Fairbairn argues, is that this being in the Father and the Son, quote, is not to be absorbed into God in any sense whatsoever. Rather, it is to be adopted as God's child. 
and thereby to share in the warm communion that the natural Son of God has with His Father. Fairbairn expands this idea, citing Cyril of Alexandria as the high point of patristic thought with respect to this matter. Here's a lengthy quote. Cyril insists that we do not share in any way at all in the identical substance or nature that binds the Trinitarian persons together. Instead, Cyril takes great pains to distinguish Christ, the natural Son of God, from Christians. We do not become God's natural sons in any ontological sense at all, because there is only one natural Son of God, the Son who is eternally begotten of the Father, and who thus possesses the substance of the Godhead. But even though we do not share in the identical substance or nature of the Trinity, Cyril strikingly argues that Christians do participate in the natural fellowship, the warm communion and intimacy which the persons of the Trinity have as a result of their unity of substance. By grace, we receive the natural communion of the Godhead because the Word who was in the beginning with God and was God, because the Word has brought His own humanity into the fellowship of the Trinity in order to share this fellowship with us as well. Although we were foreign to God, His warm love for us has led Him to raise us up to the intimacy of communion which characterizes His own inter-Trinitarian relationships. And the only difference is that we possess that fellowship by grace whereas the natural pardon me, whereas the eternal son has it naturally. Okay, that's a bit of a mouthful, but let me try to break that down because this is crucial. Let me draw an imperfect analogy to help illustrate what Fairbairn is paraphrasing Cyril of Alexandria as saying. Imagine that there is a warm, loving, intimate relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, symbolized in my analogy by three persons on three seats. Cyril is saying that we are invited to sit in Christ's seat without actually becoming Christ. We are invited to enjoy that fellowship with the Father and the Spirit which Christ has enjoyed from eternity past. To be treated in the same way. To be loved to the same degree. Taking the seat doesn't change our genetics, so to speak. We do not become the natural, eternally begotten Son of God by taking His seat. But by virtue of our adoption, we are invited to take that seat and to sit with Christ, the eternal Son, as sons, as daughters, and thereby to be invited in to the warm, intimate fellowship which the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been enjoying from eternity past. We become 
or we enter in this, this is why I'm struggling over that sentence because I phrased it in the language of this verse. Here's, here's what I wrote down. We become in that warm and intimate relationship by sitting in Christ's seat. So when Jesus says, when He prays that we would be in Him and in the Father, this is what He means. That we would be invited in to that warm intimate, loving fellowship, that interrelationship. We don't actually become God. We don't actually become the eternally begotten Son of God. We are adopted sons and daughters, but because of our adoption, we are in. And so we get to enjoy the oneness of the Father and the Son and the Spirit without actually becoming a panoply of God's. The Father then is our Father. The Son then is our brother. The Spirit also ours to love us, to minister to us, to empower us as He did and does even for the eternal Son according to His human nature. Jesus is praying that we would be welcomed in who were once outside and that we would be given a seat with Him and in Him amidst the divine interrelations. And this oneness and this unity that we will enjoy with the Father, Son, and Spirit as a result of Jesus' prayer will also bring us into a new relationship with other Christians who have likewise been invited in and have also likewise been seated with Christ in heavenly places, as Ephesians 2 puts it. The result, thus, therefore, of being in the Father and the Son will be that we are one with other true believers also. Us in them, and them in us. One body, all united to Christ. Again, I stress that this can only be a work of God. Who could bring you into that kind of relationship to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Who could bring you into that kind of relationship with all other Christians everywhere on the earth but God. What is envisioned here in John chapter 17 then is so much more than simply registering one's church to be part of an ecumenical rally or movement or event. What is envisioned here is so much more than, hey, will you guys sign up for this? We want to promote church unity. There's something so much deeper and so much more profound that Jesus is praying for here in this passage than simply getting on some list saying that, yeah, we're going to stand in solidarity with these other churches and these other Christians. Jesus isn't envisioning that the answer to His prayer will come with our signature. 
alongside the signatures of other pastors or, or church leaders saying, yeah, we want to be part of this. Jesus is not envisioning that that is the answer to his prayer, but rather a work of God bringing us in to the warm, intimate, personal interrelations of the Father with the Son, with the Spirit from all eternity past. And each of us, not only as individuals newly related to God then, but newly related to one another. Who could see us with Christ in heavenly places but God by grace as Ephesians 2 says that he has in fact done. So Jesus prays that his Father will do something profound for his people. Namely to give them a seat with him around the divine table so to speak. Which will bind them to God and to one another in a profound unity. This is the first thing that Jesus prays for you, Christian. The next thing that Jesus prays about is this. Jesus prays about glory. There is a request coming in Jesus' prayer, but there is a statement first. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Now... This glory, whatever it is, cannot be the eternal glory of the Son, which is not derived, but which He has possessed from eternity past. Let me say that another way. The Father didn't give the eternal Son glory, as if the Son is subordinate to the Father somehow and derived something from Him. No. When Jesus speaks here then about glory given to him, he must be referring to the glory appointed to him as the Messiah, as a condition of the covenant of redemption. When the Father and the Son planned redemption, there was a certain glory to be assigned to the Son as the Messiah, which he would accrue for himself which he would earn for himself, which would be given him on account of his willingness to take on the messianic work and his successful completion of it. Think of that well-known passage from Philippians as a scriptural example of this concept. What do we read there? Many of you know it. As soon as I start reading, you're going to hear it. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. What's the very next word? Therefore. Therefore. God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him. The name that is above every name. There is a glory. Which Christ was given as a result of taking the mantle of being the Messiah upon his shoulders, agreeing to do the work and successfully completing the work. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So when Christ talks here about a glory 
that he was given, he must be talking about that glory. And when Christ says he has given it to the people that the Father has given to the Son, those who are with him there and then, and us, who have believed in him through the word, there is a twofold meaning to this. Jesus means, first, that he has revealed this glory to them. He has manifested his glory as the Messiah over and over again in various ways. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. This is the glory, the glory of being the shepherd, the glory of being the door, the glory of being the resurrection and the life which was given the Messiah. And Jesus has given it to us by revealing it to us, manifesting it to us. It's not a secret that nobody knows. That, yes, that glory was given to Him, but He didn't give it to anyone else. No, to the contrary, Jesus has given it to us by proclaiming His identity, by revealing Himself to us. He has given us His glory as the Messiah. He has disclosed Himself to us or manifested Himself to us as He said He would do in John chapter 14. Verses 21 and 22, in which we read that He will manifest Himself in some way to His people, but not to the world. He's manifested His glory to us in a peculiar way. That we see, that we behold, He's opened up the eyes of our heart to perceive His glory. And in that way, He has given it to us. To you it has been granted to see and to hear the glory that the Father has given the Son as the Messiah He has given to us. In John chapter 17 and verse 6 says the same thing. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. It's this manifesting, this disclosing takes the glory that the Father has given him and he gives it to his people, manifesting it, disclosing it, revealing it to them. As Jesus prayed earlier, oh, sorry, I missed my, I missed a little bit here. Let me backtrack. Secondly, it also means this taking the glory that was given him and giving it to his people. It also means that Jesus has invited them, us, to share in his glory. Sharing in something is different than just seeing it, isn't it? He has done what is necessary for his people to be seated with him in heavenly places so that they may be glorified with him and in him. Sharing in His glory. Remember, as He is in the Father, so we will be in the Father by virtue of Him. As the Father is in Him, so the Father will be in us because of Him. There's a sense in which we see Christ's glory the way we might see 
a notable official or dignitary or movie star or athlete driving down the road in a fancy car and all of the, their splendor and the bliss that no doubt attaches itself to such a glorious existence. We see it. We behold it. But then it's as if the door is opened. He says, hey, come in. Sit with me. There's two aspects then to Jesus giving us the glory that He has been given as the Messiah. One is that we would behold it. The second is that the door would open and He would say, be seated with me in heavenly places. And as Jesus prayed earlier about the imminent future, as if it was already present, saying in verse 11 that He is no longer in the world. Well, when very obviously He's literally still there. So He does here. He says, I have given them. But the disciples, of course, haven't yet properly perceived the glory of Christ. Have they? They're about to be confused and run. Tuck tail and get out of Dodge, so to speak. When Jesus is arrested in the garden. So they haven't yet actually seen His glory the way that they will. And they haven't of course, yet experience the entire New Testament fullness of sharing in the glory of Christ as this is pre-Pentecost. Nor have future believers as yet at the time when Jesus spoke these words in John 17. Nor have future believers received Christ's glory in these twofold ways. And yet Jesus says, I have given it to them as if it's already done this is because it is as good as done as I explained a couple weeks ago when we looked at verse 11 when he says I'm no longer in the world it's because he's already gone mentally emotionally he's prepared himself for the cross the resurrection the ascension he set his sights heavenward he set his face as flint to the cross and then to the glory that awaits him beyond it. So there's a sense in which he's already gone. He's good as gone. It's a figure of speech, right? Like I said a couple weeks ago, if a marriage is falling apart, we might say the husband's already gone. She's already gone. He's already gone. Jesus spoke that way. Like, I'm no longer in the world. I'm gone. Right? And here he says, I've given it to them even though there is an as-yet fulfillment to take place. It's as good as done. I've given it to them. I'm at the end of my messianic mission. The cross is tomorrow. And then I will rise, and then I will ascend. I fulfilled the work. Again, Jesus prays then on the basis of the agreement between Himself and the Father concerning the redemption of the elect. He pleads His own merit. I've given them my glory. Jesus speaks about this twofold giving of his glory to the disciples as if it has already happened. And then Jesus requests this is the request related to glory after the statement related to glory. Jesus requests that they also, whom the Father has given him, may be with me where I am. To see my glory. 
This is the same sort of language as I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is praying for the consummation of our beholding and our sharing in His glory that we receive in due time the fullness of what God has planned for us. That in space and time, in the course of our lives, that we will behold His glory as the Messiah. That we will come to share in it. And then, when our work on earth is done, and that time appointed for us to die comes, that we will be with Him where He is. And behold His glory in an unprecedented way. This is what Jesus is praying for here. That the Father now bring to completion, to consummation, to fulfillment. Keep His end of the deal, so to speak. We already saw last week and the week before that the Father and the Son are not at loggerheads. There's harmony and, and unity of purpose between the Father and the Son. But Jesus continually prays here on the basis of what has been agreed. Look, I've finished my work. I've manifested your name. I've given them my glory. Bring that to be in due time where I am, that they may behold my glory. So Jesus prays about unity, and Jesus prays about glory. Lastly, Jesus prays about love. Specifically, Jesus prays that the love with which the Father has loved the Son would be in God's people, and that Christ would be in them. That's in verse 26. And Jesus prays that we would understand and that the world would understand that the Father loves us just as He loves the Son. Of course, if the world's going to understand, we're going to understand too. So it's there by implication, even if it's not explicit in the text. Look at verse uh, 23. That the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus wants the world to know and he wants us to know that the Father loves us even as he loves the eternal Son. This is astounding. And Jesus says that this will be a result of his giving his glory to his people. Look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That, that's a purpose statement, that they may be one. And that they may become perfectly one. And that, so that the world, and implicitly us too, may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So Jesus is giving his glory, manifesting it, and inviting his people to share it, to come and sit with him, so to speak, for a purpose or for a multiplicity of purposes. And what are those? A result of that, of Jesus manifesting his glory to us as the resurrection and the life, as the bread of life, as the door, as the good shepherd, and inviting us to be seated with him in heavenly places. A result of that is that we will be in him. 
and that in Him, the Father will be in us, and, and we in the Father, and that we will be one with other believers. And it also results in a perception, our coming to understand the profound love that God has for us. What love would invite us to be seated with Christ in heavenly places? What love would open the door of the limousine, so to speak? Say, come in. Share in this. What love would grant us this glorious destiny to experience this profound union with Christ which results in our sharing in the warm, intimate, personal interrelationships of the Father with the Son and the Spirit and also with all other genuine believers across the face of the earth and through history such that we would one day be numbered among that throng so great that no one can count crying out salvation belongs to our God to the land. Wow, the, the Father has loved us profoundly, deeply, if He would set, set such a plan in motion to make us His own sons, to give us the seat of sons and daughters around the table. See, Jesus anticipates that when we've received His glory and when we've come to share in it, we're going to get the gospel story. We're going to understand it. And in understanding it, we're going to perceive and behold the manner of love that the Father has given unto us. You see, because at a very basic level, if I had like 30 seconds on a plane that was rapidly plunging down into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean with both engines having failed and one wing already having been torn off and there's just, there ain't no way we're getting out of this. If I had 30 seconds to share the gospel, it might be something like this. We're all sinners, which means we have done stuff that God told us not to and we haven't done the stuff that God told us to do. But Jesus can save us. Trust Jesus. Something like that. Right? Many of us come to Christ in the first place with a very basic understanding that we're bad and we deserve to be punished and Jesus saves us and rescues us. And that's true. But as everything that Jesus prays for here comes to pass, as we behold His glory, and come to share in it. And eventually, when we are with Him where He is to behold it, there's going to be this eye-opening experience. And it begins, for many of us, even here and now, as we study and pour over the Scriptures, where the Gospel starts to be richer and deeper than just, we're bad and Jesus saves us from punishment. And we start to see that it goes something like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God saw that it was very good. 
But of a certain tree, God said, Thou shalt not eat. But Eve, seeing that the fruit was pleasing to the eye and good for eating, took and gave some to her husband, who was with her. And by the way, apparently, in the Hebrew, that indicates that he was with her the whole time and should have crushed the serpent's head for leading his wife away from the living God, but didn't, just stood idly by, defaulting on his masculine responsibilities. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And on the day that they ate, exactly what God said would happen came to pass. They died. Not biologically. Adam and Eve lived for many more years, but death entered into the world. And Romans 5 tells us that death reigned ever since then. We became guilty. We became corrupt. We became liable to judgment because of this rebellion against God. Now, how did God feel about this? Well, obviously God was justly wrathful towards mankind because of this rebellion against Him. But the Scripture tells us something astounding. That when this occurred, there was also love in God's heart. And we read, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Which means what person of the Godhead are we talking about? Who could give His Son but the Father? Sometimes we think in our ignorance that the Father is the wrathful one and the Son is the loving one. And so the Son works against the Father. The Father being angry with us, but the Son substituting Himself for us so that the Father has no choice but to reluctantly accept what the Son has done on our behalf and grudgingly tolerate us. But the Scripture speaks of a Father who loved such that He gave. And a Son who willingly came said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. Yes, atonement was necessary. God couldn't be just and the justifier of the ungodly unless atonement was made for the ungodly. And so Jesus willingly comes. The Father willingly sends His beloved Son to be that atonement, to suffer in our place, condemned he stood. He offered up a life of perfect righteousness on our behalf when we had defaulted on a righteous life. Couldn't muster it up. Couldn't make it happen. Jesus did it for us. And then he paid 
the penalty, or he absorbed the penalty in himself that we deserve to bear in ourselves. So that God could look at me, a sinner, and say, I'm going to justify John. And I can do it justly because Jesus paid for his sins. And Jesus' righteousness is his by faith. This is the plan of God to justly justify the ungodly. And when I say it's the plan of God, I don't simply mean it's the plan of Jesus. I mean it's the plan of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews, we read that the plan of God was to bring many sons to glory. Again, who could we be talking about? Which person of the Godhead could we be talking about bringing many sons to glory? But the Father. And the cost was the eternal Son coming, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the Father was willing to give Him up for us all. The result of this atonement of this rescue mission, of this agreement, this covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son and the Spirit is that the Son manifests His glory to us. And we see it. Ah, He is the resurrection and the life. He is the good shepherd. I'm safe in His arms because He's that shepherd of Isaiah 40 who will carry His little lambs close to His bosom. You'll gently lead those who are with you. I can entrust myself to him. But as we come to see the fullness of the story, we go, I'm safe in the arms of the Father too. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. And so we perceive then, according to verse 23, that the Father sent the Son and loved us even as he loved that son, that eternal son. What love, what privilege. What are the takeaways from this study today? First, it should inform the way we think about and conceive of our salvation. Donald Fairbairn, who I quoted extensively earlier, says, and I agree, evangelicals, more than most Christians, focus our thinking almost exclusively on our status before God, on our guilt and forgiveness and so on. Our desire to root out from our theology anything that might smack of work salvation leads us to place virtually all our emphasis on the beginning of faith, on the moment of justification, and to interpret this largely as a change in the person's status before God. End quote. Well, an emphasis on justification is healthy and biblical. It's emphasized even by the Bible. It should not be, justification should not be overemphasized to the exclusion of other aspects of our salvation. Let me ask you a question, and I want you to, I want you to tune in for this one. You don't have to answer it out loud, but I want you to reflect on it. 
do you conceive of yourself as one who is not only pardoned and forgiven and going to heaven, but do you conceive of yourself also as one who is seated with Christ and who enjoys day by day loving fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit? Is it common to you to think that way? Is it a daily thought? I'm seated with Christ. I'm loved by the Father. The Spirit dwells in me. I'm united to Christ. I have a seat at the table. I share in Christ's glory. I've been made part of this mystical body of Christ that spans geographic locations and time and a part of that multitude so large that no one can count. All of this by grace through faith. Is that a regular thought for you? A regular concept that comes to your mind? If that's not a significant, persistent motif in your life, I would suggest to you that you're probably imbalanced in your emphasis on justification. If you regularly think of yourself as a forgiven and saved person on your way to heaven, but not as one loved by the Father, Son, and Spirit, and in ongoing fellowship with Him. What would it look like, and what would it change in your daily life, your feelings, your behavior, your priorities, if you conceived of yourself regularly in this way, as one who is in love and fellowship day by day with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Second, if God has seated you together with Christ in heavenly places and your brother, the brother or sister in the pew in front of you or behind you, and the brother or sister in another church or denomination, then on what basis can you be unloving towards them? If all of these inestimable privileges that I just enumerated to you, which belong to us in and through Christ, belong also to the person in the pew in front of you or behind you or beside you or to the people in the church down the street in the next town or village over, then on what basis could you possibly be unloving to these people? If God has loved them so. If the Father loves them with the love with which He loved the Eternal Son. Then on what basis could you be unloving to them? In suggesting, as I did at the beginning, that this passage is not primarily about what we must do in terms of joining modern ecumenical movements, signing up for this event and this rally and putting our names down on this organization and so on and so forth. It is imperative that you understand that I'm not disparaging genuine Christian unity. In fact, quite the opposite. The unity that Jesus envisions is so much more than simply belonging to a parachurch organization that exists ostensibly to promote visible Christian unity. 
Genuine Christian unity is an objective reality that God has already accomplished. And therefore, since it is an objective reality that God has already accomplished, we really ought to give visible expression to it whenever and to whatever extent is appropriate. Obviously, we're not going to join with other churches in sin or promoting falsehood and error. But we really ought to recognize other Christians as Christians. And we really ought to stand in solidarity with them as brothers and sisters, even if they're wrong on a certain point. We're not going to be complicit in error of the doctrinal sort or the ethical sort. As, as best as we can, we're going to try to walk in truth and holiness. But if someone is a genuine Christian who's mixed up doctrinally about something, we still need to recognize that person as a Christian. And if someone is a genuine Christian who is mixed up ethically about how we ought to live and is living in some sort of sin, but they're a genuine Christian, we ought to recognize them as such. To press that matter further, if there are Christian churches and Christian denominations which are mixed up doctrinally about something, we ought to recognize them as genuine Christian churches, if in fact they are. If they are errant in their practice, if their ecclesiology is lacking, the way they do church and understand church and the offices and what their Sunday morning service looks like is wrong in some way, but they're genuine Christians. We've got to recognize them as genuine Christians and stand in solidarity with them. We cannot anathematize those who are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Anathematize means cut off. The only way we can be cut off from someone who's seated with Christ in heavenly places is if we're not seated with Christ in heavenly places. You understand? So if we are, and they are, then whatever we might say about them and whatever boundaries we might have to draw and wherever we might have to say, thus far I can go, but no further, so be it. But we still have to recognize these are our brothers and our sisters. And we really ought to be willing to give some visible, some visibility to that objective unity which God has wrought, which God has accomplished. What that looks like may be profitably discussed, but visible unity with other Christians is not an optional add-on. We must live consistently with our message that all of those, each and every one, whom the Father has given to the Son, has a seat at the family table. They're sons and daughters of the Father, which means they're brothers and sisters to us.